What's happening, people? Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Ryan Terry. He's a professional bodybuilder, fitness model, and IFBB pro. The realm of competitive bodybuilding demands extreme discipline that most people admire, but few understand. Just what does it truly take to rise to the top of this sport? And how much do you have to sacrifice in the pursuit of excellence? Expect to learn the origins of Ryan's bodybuilding career, his top 10 best exercises for muscle growth, why he chooses to not monitor his blood levels, who fuels his motivation and serves as his role model, why he transitioned away from the relentless tracking of every fitness metric, the morning routine that has propelled him to become the UK's number one physique competitor, and much more. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. But now ladies and gentlemen please welcome Ryan Terry. Ryan Terry, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. How do you describe what you do? Uh, so I'm a professional athlete um, and, yeah, sponsored athlete as well. In what category? So I compete in men's physique, which is a bodybuilding class, um, and that trans- transitions from athletic look. Um, but as the years have gone on, it's, it's got more and more muscular, shall mm-hmm. we say. Mm-hmm. What drives you to do what you do? Why do you choose to do this sport that involves starving yourself down to an incredibly low body fat that involves off seasons? You took an entire off season where you didn't even compete for basically a year and a half in order Mm. to be able to come back. Why? Why choose that sport? So for me, just a bit of background uh, about myself. Um, I was all—I was always brought up around sports. I was very competitive uh, growing up. I was football, gymnastics, um, swimming, uh, and golf, and it was my life uh, that competitive edge. I had um, an older brother and older sister who I always used to compete with at home. It never, never stopped. And basically, when I came into my teenage years, around the age of fourteen, I started to develop a complex about the way I looked, a bit of um, body dysmorphia, should we say? And I started to join a gym because for me, I thought training my body, making sure that I'm got six pack, looking good, feeling good, that was going to help with confidence. Just rolling it back a little bit there. Where do you think that body dysmorphia came from? Because we're basically the same age yeah. and you know we didn't have the same levels of comparison. Certainly at the age of 14, Facebook mm. didn't even exist. No, there was true. no Instagram. There was no YouTube really. True. What, what caused the onset of that? I think... For me, it's it's funny because me and my siblings have spoke about this before because we all had the same 
type of complex, but we don't know why. We had a, a great upbringing. I didn't have a father figure in my life. Um, didn't know my, my dad for about 10 years growing up in that same period. Um, so whether that was a deciding factor, um, we didn't have a lot of money, all that kind of stuff. We never went without. We just never had the best of the best. Um, but we had a brilliant upbringing, should we say. It was not an unhappy upbringing. Um, but yeah, I don't know. We, we always just felt... There was something missing, or always, and when I, I think when I was fourteen, obviously girls came on the scene, and it became more. I became more aware of myself. I think up until that point, I was just so fixated on sports, playing, just being a kid. And I think at the age of fourteen, I, I had to start work. Um, I was pot washing at the age of fourteen, waitering at the age of fourteen. Was that to contribute night. for paying for it the was. house and stuff for the family? Yep. So I paid rent. Um, Paid board. From the age yeah. of 14? From the age of 14. I was £35 and I earned probably 50 And that was every night I worked. On a Saturday, I did removals, uh, furniture removals. On a Sunday, I did pot washing all day. And um, yeah, I remember we used to take £35. The moment I, I got to 16, I was paying £50. So um, Okay, yeah. right. The, the so, <laughs> wage increases are really hitting me hard. Oh, right? it did hit me hard. So we had to. Um, so I, I didn't have an option of going on to, to sixth form or anything like that. We, I went straight into an apprenticeship. Um, and yeah, I learned the value of money and hard work uh, early on. But yeah, whether that gave me a complex or not when I was younger, I don't know. But from when I was 14, I decided I needed to change things. I was... I wouldn't say I was overweight, but I just, I felt like I was in my head and I was always looking around and at school, I never understood why I was the guy who used to wear a, a white t-shirt under his shirt, wear a jumper and a coat to try and hide himself in the middle of summer. And I was like, you're crazy. But that was just something I always did and never knew why or, or understood it. So yeah, so I started training and I saw my body changing quite quickly and yeah, I became obsessed with the gym and, and trying to learn how to... The nutrition, learn my way around nutrition. What did you do as a young guy who was trying to find his way in the world? Yeah. You know, I think it was less confusing when we were growing up than it is now, but still True. not totally like the guardrails weren't exactly there. Mm. Given the fact that you have this decade without a father figure, did you find yourself trying to supplement that with other male role models? Did you look up to other people for inspiration? Where did they come from? Yeah, so my brother is two years older than me, and he was kind of like the head of the house, kind of. He was, my sister's older as well. Um, so I kind of grew up a couple of years older than, like with people older than me. So kind of a bit of ahead of my time. The time I was 18, I was thinking about having my own house, my own business. When really you shouldn't be thinking like that at 18, you should be still being a kid, going on your lad's holidays, all that kind of stuff. But for me, he was always a, a role model for me, but he went in the army at 16. So he left, when I was 14, he left. And um, that for me felt like it's my time. I need to, to fill his shoes and, and grow up and stuff. So, so maybe that was, yeah, forced me to be more down another path. Um, and when I joined the local gym, it was a backstreet bodybuilding gym, very hardcore. And the guys in there made me work for it. But so I was the little guy just walking around, the little teenager who, who just thought they were gonna, I was going to be gone in six months. But I earned their trust. I earned their respect from training every day there. Um, and yeah, they took me under their wing. Um, and that's how I fell into bodybuilding. And I used to watch them training. And I trained with super heavyweight bodybuilders, 350-pound guys, massive, massive weights and but I always loved their dedication and I always resonated with that because of that's the sport side of, of me, the competing side, sorry. Mm. So 
when competing came up and they said, why don't you try it? And I was looking at it thinking, I don't have the confidence to take my top off and step on stage. I was a, an apprentice plumber working on site, never used to do my hair, would never take my top off in a million years. But there was something telling me to face my fears. There was something saying, step out of your comfort zone and see if you can do what these guys all around you every day are doing. Um, and that was doing a bodybuilding show, dieting down. And I just, I loved, I wasn't inspired by the, the size of them. I was just um, inspired by the way they, they lived their life, how, how regimented they were, how dedicated they were, how competitive they were, how they had a goal. And for me, I wanted to try it just once. And that was my goal, just to try it once. So I didn't tell anybody just in case I, uh, I backed out the last minute. But I started diet, dieting alongside these guys for this show. And I saw uh, this show came up and it was the closest to me because it was only like an hour and a half down the road, Leamington Spa. And I didn't realise, but this show was a, a national qualifier. It was a, it was a big show, but I just assumed it was a, a small regional show. And um, yeah, dieted down, didn't tell anybody, registered the night before. And I got down there on the day and I was like this backstage shaking like mad. And I was like, what am I doing? What the hell am I doing? Like I'm a plumber. I should not be doing this. And um yeah, yeah, I stepped on stage and I don't know what it was. I became somebody else. My alter ego came out. I was walking on stage like this and the moment the lights hit me and I came out onto stage, I was like, no, you've done all the hard work. You deserve to be here. Now it's time to battle. Mm. And, and that's how I took it. It was like it was a sport and the feeling of winning and obviously that- You won that first show. Yeah, yeah. And that elation of, of, of getting first place and then- Hooked for life. Just, yeah, unbelievable. Do you think that your sport could have been replaced by basically anything else? Like it was, it, it, it seems to me like it's competition, it's hard yeah. work, it's being disciplined, it's yeah. having a goal and working toward it. It doesn't really seem like it's that much about the bodybuilding itself. It's about pushing yeah. yourself. Yeah, I, I think so. But because I, I was instilled to work, constantly work, the, the the sports I was doing at the time was like golf and I got down to the enough scratch handicap and those type of sports were, were taking four or five hours out of the day, which for me was my working day. Mm -hmm. Whereas training was a necessity for me because I needed to transform my physique and that's what helped with my self-confidence. So that wasn't an option not to train. So if I was to do a sport, it would have been bodybuilding and another sport. Whereas bodybuilding fell into both categories. I could keep my confidence and, and yeah, my self-confidence up, but at the same time still have that competitive drive at something. We spoke before we got started about the um, challenges that you face if you become too obsessive with tracking. Now, yes. whether you're looking at wearables, whether you're looking at the quantified self-movement, whether you're looking at getting blood panels done, yeah. uh, biohacking, I imagine that the level that you're performing at, which is the biggest in the world there's only one yeah. title that you haven't won yet am i Correct. right in saying yes. which is the the olympia the cool. mr olympia yeah so there is one title left basically on everything on the planet that you everything haven't yet got yes so you have probably worked with the best coaches in terms of training in terms of posing in terms of nutrition in terms of yeah. sleep recovery rest mindset all that stuff yes which also probably will have opened up access to all manner of quantified self ideas and stuff yeah what has your journey been going from um, eating to feel, training to feel, obsessive tracking, uh, using the wearables, not using the wearables, uh, and what are sort of the lessons that you've taken away from that? Yeah, so so for me, when I started obviously competing in the early days, um, it was just about the enjoyment of it and for self confidence. It wasn't about um, 
building a career out of it. I didn't realize I could, I could build a career from it. Um, I just did it for the enjoyment and it, it kept me on a level where I was happy. So while I, well, whilst ever I was in prep and enjoying the whole process of training and just having that accountability every day, I was happy and my best results and I, the, the growth of, of my career happened so fast when I was in that state of mind. Um, and again, if you look back at them, I was very relaxed in how I trained. So it was all about how I feel, how I pump up, my strength, tiredness, all these basic things on how I feel. Just being at one with myself, like looking in the mirror, thinking, right, things need to change. I need to work on this. I'm not feeling great today. Do I need more sleep? Um, right, I'm not feeling strong. We're going to back off the, the heavy weight sets. We're going to look for more time under tension or more volume sets just to go off how I feel. But as I grew and got more and more, um, well, more competitive in, in, in the bodybuilding career and winning more titles, teams came on. Teams wanted to help. They wanted to know your body fat. They wanted to know all these other things. And I let them come on and it became, I don't know, it... It was unenjoyable for me because mm-hmm. it, it was taking away why I started it and why I did it, which was, again, for self-confidence and the enjoyment of it. And every day we're waking up and we were tracking this, we were weighing this, and it just it took it away from me and it just became monotonous and a job for me. And I'm obsessed with bodybuilding. I, I love it, but it's a lifestyle. 365 days a year, I've done this for the last 20 years, and I enjoy it. But when I went through that stage, I lost enjoyment and that for me was a big thing. And if you look over my career and, and my placings, I had a two year lull. Um, and it was because of that, because I just, I was answering to other people. I lost confidence in myself because I was thinking, I don't know the answer to this, or do I need to change this? What do I take this food out? Or, oh no, there's a variable here. What do I do? Whereas n- normal, normally, and now, I just adapt accordingly because I know my body. Um, and as I'm getting older, my metabolism is changing, but that's the beauty of bodybuilding. Like everything changes from time to time. The interesting thing that I've been playing with as well since starting doing this show, you start off doing something that you love, right? And you end up being competent at it or yeah. semi-competent at it. And then you start to work a little bit harder and you think, wow, I'm accruing more gains than I feel like I should be. You know, your first show, you shouldn't have won your first show. Yeah. Like most people don't. Yeah. Uh, by definition and then you go okay well i'm going to lean into this more and then as you said you get the opportunity maybe i could turn this into a profession maybe i could start to labor around this but one of the quickest ways that you can destroy your love for something is to turn it into a labor 100 percent. and yeah. most of the people from the outside this is <clears throat> there's a concept called ikigai right which is your calling in life it's at the intersection of uh what you're good at what society needs what you can be paid for uh, and what you love to do Right, okay. so you can imagine you got this Venn diagram, and right yeah. in the middle, that's where your highest point of contribution is between right. all of those things. Presumably, yeah. because you need to be supported by it. Most people that start doing something that they absolutely love—they're a painter, they play the guitar to themselves, they do whatever—don't realize what on the other side of turning that into a job would perhaps cause a lot of the things that they love about their love to fall away. Yeah. And all of these unseen costs to come through, all of the travel, yeah. all of the additional time away from friends and family, yeah. the obligations that you need to do for people like Gymshark, for your supplement company, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, those start to stack up because yeah. you go, well, I'm not, I'm no longer being supported by being a plumber, by being on site, by doing yes. these things. Yeah. And then <clears throat> on top of that, you have like, you have the existential pain of, well, if I fail when it's just my thing on the side, it doesn't matter. I'm yeah. still a plumber, I'm still a father, I'm yeah. still a friend, I'm still a whatever. Yeah. 
But if I am my pursuit yeah. and I fail at my pursuit, yeah. that means that I am a failure, right? There is no more yeah. uh, existential distance between what you, how you show up in the world in your chosen pursuit yeah. and who you are. Yeah, and exactly. <clears throat> that, that pressure for a lot of people is really crippling. Yeah. And uh, it, it's, it's something that getting through it, it seems like it is, has, was a challenge for you. Yeah, it was. And the thing is, when we talk about training as well, you know, even down to the training aspect of it, a lot of people now have logbooks and they track everything, which if that works for that individual, I'm all for it. I think fantastic. And if you enjoy that process, but I'm on the other side of it, I'm very sporadic. I like to, to go in and how it feels on the day. And I know how to push my body through its limits and to its limits. So for me, I've learned that over the years. And whenever I try to implement something like that, too much structure, I lose that enjoyment, which I'm actually being counterproductive because mm-hmm. for me, that's just how I've always worked in business. Um, I'm a lot more more productive now when I free flow. Um, and some people, I've spoke to people who are so anal and about that, they just can't comprehend it. But, but it works for, me, for them. Yeah. But for me, the opposite way around, I can't comprehend that. So I come from a productivity background. When we first started this podcast, a lot of it was about productivity because I was I was adamant that the right note-taking app and external brain system would fix all of my problems. Like, okay. Spoiler alert, it didn't. But <laughs> I tried really, really hard to have this perfect note-taking system and it would all be nested and would, the Notion database would be updated and all this stuff and I would use my getting things done to-do list reminders. Yeah. And I found it stressful. I found it very arduous to try and construct my life using this. Yeah. Um, and now I'm looking at my notes in front of me, 2,563 notes, which we've got on on Apple Notes, which is what we use. The wow. most basic bitch thing that my mum probably uses to remind herself <laughs> of her shopping. My yeah. point being that whatever the system is that you get into using yeah. has to work for you. And <clears throat> trying to follow on from someone else's prescription, the model mm-hmm. of this is how it's supposed to work, it's very easy, especially in... 2023 to say, well, going more quantified, going more aggressive with your tracking, especially yeah. stuff like uh, heavy app um, and all of these weight tracking apps. They'll yeah. do your like poundage across an entire workout across a week about yeah. RPEs. You can do drops. You can add everything yeah. in, right? Time, dress periods. For some people, that's great. For other people, that's not. But don't you think in, especially with bodybuilding, <laughs> there's so many variables. There's too many variables that, that, can change from from day to day so when people track i think how can you track like so specific because if you've had eight hours sleep one day if you had 10 hours another day that two hours difference in sleep will make a huge difference for me it does yeah. i know it's so i, I can what do you try and get in terms of sleep per night <sighs> i've got a two-year-old <laughs> right okay right out the window but okay i would love eight hours but i don't know i'm up at four half four most mornings uh, I do an hour work and then I I do my cardio, my fasted cardio after that at half past five. And then the, the house is awake from six. So okay. yeah, it's a crazy morning. Right. <laughs> we'll go into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> one of the things that I'm interested in, you know, you are getting toward like the peak of your career now with yeah. regards to marrying business, still doing the thing that got you famous, Yeah, all of your obligations. You're living in the UK, which is a great country, but does have a little bit of a cap in terms of the ceiling of success, right? You are far and away probably the best known physique competitor coming out of the UK. Yeah. How have you managed to keep your goals growing with you, Yeah. given the fact that you're outstripping pretty much all of your competition? The reason I say this is that there will be a lot of people listening. By definition, they're listening to this kind of a podcast that means that they're already selected out into the 
top 0.1% of people thinking about personal development, thinking about improving themselves. Yeah. How can someone, how did you, and how can someone who doesn't necessarily have that um, community of competitors and, and encouragement around them, wherever they live, yeah. continue to push themselves as their goals get bigger as they progress? Oof, that's a hard question, that is. Yeah. Well, how did you do it? So, so why, me, why were you so driven? Given the fact that you kept on beating everybody, why were you so driven? So for me, I was always driven to be number one in the world. And until I get that title, until I've won the Olympia, in my eyes, I've, I've not... I'm not the best in the world. I'm not, I've not achieved what I've, I've set out to achieve. So everything I've ever set out to achieve in this um, industry, I've achieved so far other than the Olympia. So my goal was always every show I've ever done to never do a lesser show in prestige. So that was how I grew quite quickly because I was very strategic on in, in the, the shows I did. I did my research before and I wanted to be known straight away. I wanted to go against the best straight away. I wasn't someone who wanted to just make the numbers up or have an easy qualification, easy route to Olympia. I wanted to go against the best as quick as possible to know my worth and to know if I'm good enough to be up there. Because again, I, I want to win shows. I don't want to be there just to, to make the numbers up. And that always drove me. So I was very fortunate early on. I was like, I say, I was the first pro from the UK for a held first pro from Europe, held that for five, six years before anyone else. It was me against the Americans for so long. Um, and that was just a driving force in itself. I felt like I had the UK behind me, like pushing me and pushing Pressures me. Pressures and expectations of an entire nation. Yeah, Very but good. It was, but it was phenomenal. I loved it. And even now I still have that drive, um, but I'm realistic because I have other obligations with family now and I know I need to provide for them and I know I need to um, always be there for them. And I don't want to be a selfish dad. I want to be the best... Um, husband I can to my wife. So things change along the way and it has become so much harder now. But if I want it, which I do, I will, uh, I'll keep going and just keep finding a route. And that's how I like to do it. I don't overthink it. I need to be ready in six weeks or seven weeks time uh, for my next show. It's not been announced yet. The things I'm doing now, I've got five businesses and obviously a young family. I've got my wife who's pregnant, who's due in three months. And I'm doing something huge project to the which I can't talk about. There is so much at stake here. I know what but, it is. I know I know what the project is. It's pretty cool. <laughs> but I thrive off it. I absolutely love it. And if if I didn't have that, I would go insane. That's I've always worked at such a high capacity because mm -hmm. it's the only way I know how. I think because of that work ethic being instilled from the age of fourteen, if I get too complacent, I get I get stuck. I lose my head and I need to be constant. What happens if it's three years from now and you still haven't won Mr. Olympia? Oh, that's a good question. It's hard to say because people assume I'm older than I am because <laughs> one, because I talk, I'm very monotonous and old boy, no. No. <laughs> but two, because I've been in, in the industry so long. Yeah. We were talking before I had a guy yesterday come up to me and say, oh, I was looking at your front cover magazines for muscle and fitness in 2009. I'm like, wow, that's 14 years ago. Like, and I remember that like it was yesterday. And it's just crazy to think, but I was very successful in the, my, my early days. So from 18, 19, I, I came onto the scene. So now I'm competing against guys who are still two, three years older than me winning the Olympia. So I don't want to be a guy who's stuck around and think, God, he's still here after like 15 years. But at the same time, whilst ever I've still got that drive and that hunger and that passion for that, that first place, I'll keep go. I'll keep going. Um, so we'll if see. it gets, if it gets to that stage, if you're like, I'm now 38, 39, 40, 41, yeah, then you, 
how how difficult is it going to be for you to let that go if you haven't won that title? So me, Ross Edgley, have actually spoke in detail about this because that is my fear. I'll, I'll admit this now is I don't know because competing satisfies that that competitive side of me. I don't know what I'll do when it, it's over because I never did it for the fame or for the popularity or anything like that. It was always about yeah satisfying that hunger for competitiveness. So when that stops and my wife said the same, you need to start to think about it now and start to address it because yeah, I tried to have a year out, like I say last year. And the reason I had that year out was uh, I was thinking it's time for me to stop or to, to kind of, because we had a child on the way and all that kind of stuff. And I got five businesses to run. I was trying to fill that competitive void with businesses and, and trying to keep me busy. That's a, but I couldn't, like, I, I just love competing. I love being in that regimented state and that that fire to compete against other athletes. It just, yeah, I'm not sure what I'm going to do, to be honest. I think that uh, one of the best examples of this, which I always use, is Eddie Hall, right? So, you know, Eddie gets yes. very close to winning World's Strongest Man. He doesn't. He's sort of pipped at the post. Yeah. And then he does, and he's there, stood with this, yeah. trophy in his hand and he's crying for his grandma i think yeah. that's recently passed away uh and he retires he retires yeah. there and then yeah. and i don't know man i i would like to think that when you do end up winning that trophy you should be able to go out with a lot of grace and go okay yeah. like what's the next challenge the that, problem that, that, that you have for me though sorry to interrupt but that yeah. for me i would be happy to win people say yeah but would you would you you'd want to start a legacy and would you want to win it again and again i wouldn't now for me once i've achieved like i say I've, I've won every show i've won i have no desire to go back and win that again even though they are really prestigious shows it's another year on you'd get the popularity you get the prize money you'd get all of that with with, with win that show again but for me I've done that. It's in the past. I don't have that same drive for that show. Like the Arnold Classics. So why did you do three Arnold Classics? Because you say you don't, you want to do a show that you've done. Because I want, I wanted to be the first one in the UK. I wanted to be the first in Europe and the first in the USA. So that was three different Arnold Classics in three different continents. What, a country, sorry, which no one else has done. <laughs> okay. Let's say you are someone who has spent the last 20 years focusing on training, especially for hypertrophy. Yeah. You are someone that has won pretty much every single title on the planet. You have 10 exercises that you can do for the rest of your life in order to maintain as good of a physique as you can. What are they and why? 10, that's very specific. 10. I just figured, <laughs> I just figured that that would be enough for you to get each different muscle group. Right, okay. So what are, the, what are the longest levers that you can pull when it comes to maintaining size or increasing size for so muscle a lot of obviously compound lifts. So you're looking at your deadlifts, uh, your bench press, um, and your squats. They're, they're always good. Again, these are things that I've, I've had to adapt over the years because of um, injuries and things. Training silly when I was younger. Okay, there's um, three. There's three there. Um, hanging leg raise for core. It's one of the hardest midsection. If you do it properly, I think it's one of the hardest uh, midsection exercises, but it's phenomenal for your transverse abdominals, your upper and lower abdominals, everything. Just, it's a great, I feel like that was something that helped me build my, my midsection. You've got one heavily. of the like acclaimed best midsections in all of fitness. What are the cues that people get wrong when they're doing hanging leg raises? So the create momentum, the swing, which um, 
I think that has a bit to do with CrossFit with this kipping and malarkey and momentum stuff that that came into play uh, a fair few years ago. But um, yeah, I think swinging. Um, I think using the hip flexors instead of the the midsection. How do you know if you're doing that? You'll feel it. You'll feel it down your quads. Um, What's the cue? Someone's doing a, a. Someone's listening to this, hanging from a bar right now. What is the cue for them to go from I'm hanging straight to I'm doing a leg raise? That makes it work appropriately. So is it tucking the hips in and making mm -hmm. sure you're contracting uh, your upper and lower abdominals before anything else? So it's always keeping them fully contracted. Mind to mind to muscle connection is is a huge thing. I believe in that so much. Yeah, and, Mike Thurston does the same. Yeah, and the thing is. The last few years, I've done that so much more now. As I've got older and more mature, I'm not just trying to lift heavy weight and trying to ego lift. And since I've done that, the muscle maturity and, and how my body's developed is just exponential. I just wish I'd done it five, six years ago. Um, so, yeah, so I think that's very important, mind-to-muscle connection. With hanging leg raises, are you going to an L? Are you going up to touch the bar? So either. So I used to do all the way to the top, um, but I alternate now. So I just do a bit of both. Um, I think... There's a, there's a place for both of them, but I think that when you go past a certain point, you are recruiting other muscle groups. Um, so if you want to just isolate your midsection, just go to 90 degrees. How do you do progressive overload on that? Or do you? You, well, you could add weights to your... Do you? Your, I don't, personally, no, because I was obsessed with my midsection growing up. As you can see, I, Rob Richards was the guy who got me obsessed with it. So I wanted to be on the front covers like Rob was. I used to see all the magazines, and I... Try to treat my midsection like any other muscle part. Some, a lot of people think with the midsection, you should um, train 30 minutes after every session. Or why? Every other muscle part we train, we, we train to break the muscle fibers down heavy, uh, a lot of load. We break the muscle fibers and we let them recover two, three, four days before we hit them again. And that's how I looked and viewed my midsection. So I'd give them two full hour sessions with a three to four day rest between. And I'd the six to eight rep range really heavy. The thing with that, I start to develop really chunky abs, blocky abs, but in then it started to look a bit distended because I'd gone too far with it. And I was causing so many back problems. I had slipped discs from it. And basically it's because I was too front heavy, too front strong. So it took a lot of years to start having to uh, hyperextend for every crunch I did. They said I had to do two hyperextensions. Wow. So yeah, it was You needed monotonous. to compensate for all of that anterior yes. strength that you developed. Yeah. And so now I don't tend to go too heavy and we do a lot of own body weight stuff. Okay, cool. Yeah. So you've got four. You've got squat, bench, deadlift, yeah, okay. hanging leg raises, six more slots to keep your body. <laughs> uh, so so I'd go with uh, some isolation work. So we'll, we'll probably go with like an incline dumbbell chest just because um, you can do vary a lot of different variations on that, but I think it's great for development. Um, Shoulders aren't getting much work at the moment. <laughs> All right, shoulder press. We'll go with uh, a dumbbell shoulder press because mm -hmm. it's great for isolation, unilateral, um, and that's quite important. Um, obviously, Four leg left. work. So we need to do some hamstring work. So we'll, we'll do – I would – I would say stiff leg deadlift, but no, I think if we're going to try and create some growth, I think we're going to go for like a, a lying hamstring curl heavy. Mm -hmm. You prefer a lying to a seated? I do, yes. Mm, yeah, I do. But I don't know if that's down to the fact that I just get better contraction off that. Mm -hmm. I think it's personal preference um, in my eyes. I've always said that with any type of exercises. If you feel an exercise more than another, 
stick with it, go with it, do the extra sets and reps on that particular exercise because that's where you're going to get the most out of it. If you're doing an exercise because someone else has told you to do it and you're not getting that mindfulness connection or you're not feeling it, mm-hmm. there's no point. And that's, that's what I love about bodybuilding as well. Nutrition and training, you adapt it to you. It's, it's an individual sport. You can have people around you supporting you, but your metabolism and the way you train, the way you eat, it all falls on you. So learn the body yourself and adapt as you go. Okay. Three left. What have you got? I've lost where we are now. Um, Squat, bench, deadlift, hanging leg raise, uh, incline chest press with dumbbells, seated shoulder calf, press. Seated calf raise. Seated calf raise. Oh, yeah. so you want to get the soleus moving. Yeah, we'll get them in. We'll okay. get them in. Okay. We'll, we'll cover them. And then... Um, Two left. We need overhead tricep extension, rope. Uh, pivoted from the bottom of a pulley. Yeah. Right, okay, yeah. yeah. What are the cues that people get wrong there? Because this is a, something that I absolutely love to do, but yeah. where, where do people go wrong? It's quite mechanically quite a complex movement. Yeah, I think you can go too heavy too soon and start recruiting and start yeah pulling, I don't know, uh, with the shoulder. I think it's, it's important to lock your elbows in a fixed position uh, as well as the shoulder, making sure there's no movement there. I like to elongate and stretch it out. Not, not a lot of people go too far with it, but I like to overextend slightly to get a full stretch mm-hmm. um, and a full contraction at the top. Um, one more we need biceps don't we then we've got everything then what's your number one bicep exercise what is my number one bicep you know what I'm going to say I'm going to say this is a bit of an outward one this because I've done loads of them today is um, pull ups close grip pull ups I know it's a back workout, mm-hmm. but your secondary muscle is bicep. And, I, and the contraction I get off that for my bicep, every week I hit them. I always want to bring my back up anyway, so it's an excuse to just hit the back as well. Mm-hmm. But I think that's a great overall exercise. Given the fact that you've added deadlifts in, what is it that you're finding as a physique competitor that first off isn't massively judged on your legs and secondly wants a narrow torso? why would you put deadlifts into that kind of a workout? So I've never believed this with, I don't know if scientifically this is right, but with deadlifting, I've never, I used to deadlift every week. Uh, I don't so much now. I do a lot more isolation on hyper extensions. Again, because I get a better contraction, I do hypers. I prefer to deadlift, but I do hypers mainly. But with a deadlift, um, obviously it recruits near enough every muscle in the in the body. So it's great for, for an overall workout. But um I've lost my train of thought. What were we saying? Why are you using deadlifts given that you want to have a small waist? Yeah, like I say, because I train my midsection the way I do, I do a lot of isotension in the morning. Um, What's that? So it's basically all about iso holds. So you breathe in, fully breathe in, you exhale every bit of air out of the body and you crunch your abs as hard as you can for three seconds. And then Standing you, up? Standing up, yeah. Yep. You can do that with any muscle part. So I, it's the most monotonous thing a bodybuilder can do but it's one of the best things for for muscle control for getting everything tight for condition i challenge anybody to do this so do we'll, we'll keep it simple three three from the front three from the sides you've got three on the bleaks on either side so you've got so you inhale hands over your head you, as you come down you crunch you exhale every bit of air out you crunch and hold it for three seconds as hard as you can it's good to have your top off because you need to seriously tense do it again and crunch try and do that 10 times and then go to the side and then crunch down hold and then do that 10 times and then mm-hmm. do that 10 times have 30 seconds rest go again and then go again i do it five rounds and you're literally dripping wet through and the blood volume you get in your midsection is insane so you can do that with like um with your biceps or between 
exercises. So if you're doing, um, yeah, like a, a bicep curl, you can straighten, you hold your pose, a double bicep, and you hold, you squeeze your midsection, uh, midsection you squeeze your, your bicep as hard as you can for 20 seconds, say. You come out and then you go straight back into your, your working set. It is brutal, but if you ever see on a bodybuilding stage when, when people are like this shaking, because they've got no connection, they've got no control over their bicep. And is that struggling. why that happens? Yeah, yeah. But there's other, there's other factors what they're can happen. Dehydrated, they're yes. tired, they're yeah. et cetera, et cetera. But nine times out of 10, that will be d- down to the fact they've not done any ISO holds or they've not took the time with their posing to practice the posing. Um, and that's something I always pride myself. And I remember the first few shows I did on the Olympia stage, and we're all, we're all back, um, hitting from the back. And the guys are going, like, Ryan, what can I, how are you holding that? How are you holding that? Cause they're all, everyone's shaking. And it's because eight weeks out from any show, 30 minutes after my fasted cardio, I'll do ISO holds with every, every pose I have to do and every muscle group. So it's, it's horrendous, but these are the things that people don't see. These are like, so, so when you look at bodybuilding, oh yeah, you eat some meals and you train uh, twice a day, but it's the, it's the little things. It's the, what I've, I'm, I obsess over because it's okay having a great work ethic, like in the gym or having the discipline to eat your six meals and, and not cheat. But it's also the other bits of presentation, which is so important. What's your morning routine? Take me through it from waking up. What time? What do you do? What are you eating? What are you drinking? What movements are you going through? Yeah, so typically around five o'clock we get up. Um, I do a black coffee. I'll go down, I'll have uh, EAAs and L-carnitine. And that's like 15 minutes before I go and do my Is that oral L-carnitine or injected? Uh, oral. Yep. Yeah, oral. Uh, through liquid, liquid form. And then 15 minutes after that, I'll go and do an hour fasted cardio. So 30-minute cross trainer, 30-minute incline walk. Um, what sort of heart rate is on to? Again, I don't look at that now. That, that's, I'm very basic in okay. that. Thing. It's a low intensity. It's nothing too, too strenuous in that way. Uh, I'll do 30 minute core work or um, it's either 30 minute core work or 30 minute uh, stretch mobility work after that hour. Um, and then it's 30 minutes uh, posing. So you do your posing. Uh, what time is it now? So that is seven o'clock ish. Half seven. Wow. Okay. So it's a very regimented morning. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Seven o'clock. Yeah. So then half seven, I'll go in, I'll have, yeah, massive breakfast, but uh, to most, most people it's massive, but for me it's, it's nothing but. um, What does that typically consist of? So I'll always make sure uh, my first meal has every source of approach. So we've got a good um, source of protein, bioavailable protein. We've got, so like a whey protein or whey isolate. We've got complex carbs, so oatmeal. Um, we've got essential fats through almond butter or almond flakes. We've got blueberries, antioxidants. Um, are you blending all this together or are you eating it separately? No, I eat it all together. Uh, in I don't blend it. We, yep. we cook it. Yep. I put the protein in. I let the I cook it all first, let it cool down, then put the protein in not to, to degenerate it too much. Yep. Okay. Um, and then, yeah, I'll take my multivits. Um, so we've got multivits, CLA, uh, Amigas, all that kind of stuff um, around yeah, my meal. And we're now at what, 8.30? About 8 o'clock, eight. yeah, around 8 o'clock. Okay, day's about to begin. Yeah, and then obviously my son's ready to, he has his breakfast with me, so I make his breakfast at the same time. Um, I've changed his nappy twice by then. <laughs> okay, does that get added into the workout as well? Yeah, it's horrendous. Fantastic, fantastic. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, we get him ready. Um, and then, yeah, I start my working day. So, dude, I mean, just that morning, you mentioned before we got started, I train three times a day. Mm. You know, I, I'm good friends with a bunch of CrossFit athletes and they're known for training 
slash overtraining. Yeah. I think from the outside, especially the world of physique, yeah. uh, but also bodybuilding, the volume of training is something that people don't really get to see. Yeah. And part of that is it doesn't translate very well on video. Yeah. You know, true. like uh, understand because no one's going to show five or six sets of 12 on yeah. one exercise, then yeah. five or six sets of 12 on yeah. another exercise. Whereas everybody knows what a 20 minute EMOM or 30 minutes yes. of monostructural work is. I think CrossFit particularly is a, a sport or a, a training methodology that is designed to look good yeah. on video. You know, it's quite compelling. Yes. It's varied. It's high intensity. Uh, bodybuilding is a bit more monotonous, it, which but, makes yeah, it less exciting. So. Um, I think the same thing's true of footballers as well, that mm. the difficulty of training that footballers go through specifically is something that nobody thinks about. Like you think about boxers, uh, you know, even tennis players, golfers, you think about the amount of time they spend. To me, when you think about footballers, given that it's the most popular sport on the planet, I just don't hold them in the same reverence. You know, I don't think that the hard workers, I'm sure that the tons and tons and tons of hard workers look at Ronaldo with his top off uh, insane. Yeah. But I still don't hold them in that same way. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, hundred percent. But then, obviously, when we talk about just to, to give you insight, like my working day as well. So I eat every two hours. So I have to cook at least six meals a day. So in that time, I have three chicken breasts, or no, four chicken breasts. In fact, four chicken breasts, two salmon fillets, two fillet steaks a day, four eggs a day, all with rice, white potato, eggs. Uh, oats uh so much veg so i have to prep all that that's straight after my morning you're doing that you haven't got somebody that comes in you're not just paying a chef to come and do this for you so i did that for about three months and i just couldn't get my head around someone else doing my work for me and i just because i need to know when i step on stage every part of my prep and every part of my 365 days of the year going into that show I know exactly what I've put into it's been my under body. your control. Yes. And I, even my wife, bless her, I, we had this conversation last week. She tried to shorten my day, but so whilst I was, she was working out, right, he's, he's must be nearly 15 minutes from finish. She started to make my breakfast and she put it in the microwave ready. So all I had to do was press it on, but I couldn't get my head around it because I was like, are you sure She's there's, only, it out. Yeah, there's only yeah. 120 grams in that? Are you sure there's only 20 grams of almonds? And it's ridiculous, but I just feel comfortable. Yep. I don't make a scene or anything. It's just what I've always done. Quietly, chug on, yeah. get it done. And when people talk about, um, like if you see a bodybuilder, and they get, you get this misconception, and it's, it's horrible where people are like, oh, you're living out your Tupperware and you make a big scene of it, and yeah, you've got your fish and rice. I've managed to do that for, for 20 years now, and I've never made it... like. I can still socialize with my friends, still go out at night. If we go to restaurants, if I can't eat what nine times out of 10, I can eat in every restaurant. You just ask for a plain steak or a plain chicken breast, jacket potato, some mixed veg or a mixed salad. It's easy. So when they say, oh, I can't have that, I can't eat any of, any of this because it's not on prep. You can, of course you can. You just have to adapt. And it's, it's how much you want to live in normal society and be a bodybuilder, which don't typically go hand in hand. But I go on nights out, I'll nip out to my car quickly eat my meal, come back in the time it takes to go to the toilet. So people don't even know Like my son's birthday, really sad two, two weeks out from the Olympia. Everyone's celebrating in his pub. Um, yeah. Uh, garden uh, pub. 
And yeah, I just kept nipping off every two hours into my car to eat my meals back in. No one even knew it looked like I'd gone to get a drink. But it's, like being a, it. it's like being a, a closet drug addict, yeah. but yours is protein instead of heroin <laughs> yeah. or something. Went to watch Creed 3 last week with my brother-in-law and I was, I was nipping to the toilet, straight out of the fire exit, eat my meal in the car park, straight back in. Didn't, no one even knew. And I just thought, you don't have to make a scene of it. It's just part and parcel of what I do. And it's just became the norm now, but... But yeah, just to follow on from the working day, uh, then I get into my emails. Like I said, I've got five businesses to run. So I've got property developing, got a clothing company, uh, got a coaching company, um, Blood Lab, which is um, a healthcare clinic company, and then RJT Limited, which is all my sponsors and obligations there. So we address Why can people go if they want to get blood work done in the UK? So it's called uh, the Blood Lab. If you look on Instagram, you'll see. But we have pop-up clinics all over the UK, Scotland, Ireland. So we have about 40 to 50 clinics running through the year. Um, and then we've got a full-time HQ, which I've just uh, built in Hale, Manchester. So that's open 24-7. Um, we've, we've got over 20 phlebotomists now. We've got four. So you have to go uh, to... To the website, book on. Yeah, but um, you have to go in terms of getting a blood draw. It's not like in no, no. the US where you can go to LabCorp or the local yeah. places that can take the blood and send it to you yeah so you can have um, you can have it done at your house we can send people out to you so we we've partnered up with Ra- uh, randox now so huge huge company who actually can come to your door take your blood work or you can do it yourself uh, and send it off we That's like brave. yeah <laughs> you know, obviously not do it yourself but get a phlebotist do it but send right, okay, it from, okay from, okay yeah send right, it from understood. home um, what's the website yeah, for that if people want to get blood work in the uk uh, so yeah thebloodlab.co.uk um Go on to there, and like you'll see, we do everything now. So we do ECGs, echocardiograms, um, we do minor surgeries, TRT, HRT. Um, wow, you're like a British IV. Derek from More Plates, More Dates. <laughs> so yeah, we're doing a bit. I'm still learning all this side of it. This is something, as I've got older, I've took more pride in um, like my blood work and, and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Um, talk yeah, to me about, talk to me about, I mean, if you, you have access to these bloods, what sort of numbers do your test levels and everything else get down to as you're right at the bottom end of prep just how ugly does that look well i tend so this is the thing as well i never look at them whilst i'm in prep so i've got i've put my my faith and trust into my doctor which i've I've worked with i met him on a gym shark event in australia would you believe (laughs) and we we came came back and we started working together and i just said to him look i don't need to know that as long as i'm healthy and i need where i need to be don't again you know i said to you about i don't want to concern myself with numbers and analytics and so i want to just unless i'm outside on. of range and there's something exactly. really concerning just yeah. crack on and but does he tell you afterward have that. you seen what it looks like afterward uh yeah it's very low right <laughs> i must admit with the body fat being so low as well that is uh yeah it's, it's pretty low but it's it's just within i'd say five or six weeks of coming off a show getting my body fat back up just easing off training and all that kind of stuff a little we're, bit less stress as yeah well. we're normally back into where we need to be and um that's why i kind of towards the end the last few years i've only ever done one show a year because of how taxing it is on the body um i used to live and breathe it and it was just the norm i used to love it but obviously with having a family now um i can't be selfish during six five days a year so for me i just i have to think of them more as well Given the fact that you've got this massive Instagram, people have been following you for decades based on the way that you look. Yeah. Do you have any desire to start serving the world beyond just the skin deep way that you show up? Have you got a plan for that moving forward to actually Um, add value beyond simply being a visual inspiration? 
Yeah, well, so again, so for me, that was never my intention to be front of house. And to I was always someone who liked to work in the background and be an underdog. You know, whether it was your intention or not, that's what's ended up <laughs> I, happening. Yeah, you wouldn't believe it, but um, I would love to do something to to help others. And with the blood, for me, with the blood lab, I know it's a bit cliche saying it, but that for me seems like I'm starting to to transition more because the amount of people we've helped now and the amount of people we're educating because our it started off as a bodybuilding like field with the blood work but we've now gone further afield it's now mainstream we're going corporate with it and everything and it's growing at such a level but it's just educating people more around health um, and that's something yeah that I've, I've prided myself in so i think without even consciously knowing it that's the where where i'm going now uh, with a lot of things and the exciting project that i'm building at the minute that's that's a huge step in that direction um and it, it might be my retirement should we say it might be my way of that transition that might f- uh, fill that void should we say with, with with competing given the fact that you've spent so much time up front being a competitor <clears throat> how is that informing the way that you show up as a father you've mentioned that you've got a young son who is just now going to be starting to ask questions yeah. you know wanting to do things maybe even looking at hobbies and you know going daddy and do gym daddy yeah. gym every morning daddy gym so he says to him, <laughs> yes, I'll be back in an hour okay <laughs> so what are the values that you hope that you instill into your son and what are the things as well that you hope that you don't given you know the 10 yeah. year absence that you had of a father yeah. figure so that is the reason I want to be the best dad in the world because of me not having that when I was younger um, so that is my number one priority now people say oh is that why you you probably won't win the Olympia? Have you lost that drive? But I think the opposite. I want to prove to people, uh, and I want to prove to my son, uh, like he's massive motivation for me. He's my driving force to be able to provide for him, to, for him to be proud of me. He was he was at the the seat one A. I'm getting actually emotional talking about one A um, at the Arnold Classic, which meant he was behind the head judge, which every person who loves bodybuilding would want to sit there i had my son who was one years old sitting out i pulled every string i could to have him sat there because i wanted him to see his his dad and to be proud of proud of it me to win it in front of him and stuff so he's been a big driving force for me to carry on and to keep getting better for him personally and with the businesses and all that kind of stuff one of the businesses is in his name so he doesn't know it he's the director and he it will be his company when youngest director in the uk exactly so it's called alta which is alfie lewis terry aesthetics so for me these are all things which i never had and i told you about growing up with with we didn't have a lot of money i was from the age of 14 i was told i had to work and and i was instilled that hard work and yeah, we, there was times where we say we never had the best things. We never went without, but we appreciated money, and we, we mm. yeah, we never had the the big holidays, all that kind of stuff. So this is something I want to be able to to give my son to have the life I didn't have, but at the same time, I've said to my wife, please don't let me get carried away just because we've done well and, and we're financially okay now that he doesn't appreciate the value of. So of this money. is the next question that I've got for you, mate. How yeah. is it, given the fact that you have managed to be an incredible success? in spite because of the limitations and the challenges that you had to face. You want to pay forward your success to give your kid the chances that you never, kids, that you, and the future. Yeah, the future one. (laughs) um, The chances that you never had, the opportunities you never had, the quality of life that you never had. And yet, both of us, the things that we went through when we were kids have driven us to do things 
that in retrospect we're incredibly proud of yeah. and very well may not have achieved had we not have very had true. those setbacks. That is very true. How, I mean, you know, this is a perennial question, but how are you balancing the difference between wanting to give your child love and give your child challenges? Yeah, this is this is a great this is a great topic. This is something me and my wife need to sit down and talk more about because I am fearful of that. Like I said, I want to spoil Soul my son. Syndrome. Yes, I want to spoil my son because I want yeah, I want him to be happy. I want it, but at the same time, I still want him to be even to the point where this is going to sound a bit wrong now. But he's in private school now, or he's only, he only goes twice twice a week. He's he's only two years old, but. I'm contemplating taking him out of private school. Although I want him to have the best start in life and, and the best education in life, I don't want him, like you said, the silver spoon. I, I don't want him to think that's the norm because he's going to school with people who turn up in helicopters and like Bentleys. And, and I'm thinking, I didn't have any of this. And I, I've i done okay. And I and I, I wised up to the world a lot quicker. And it's, and it's a harsh world. And I don't want him to be mollycoddled. And he is being, to, to some degree, with with my wife and I love her so much for it because she, she cares for him so much and it, yeah, you couldn't ask for a better mum. but at the same time, I, I am fearful that he, yeah, he, he won't be ready for the big wide world. <laughs> He's got to be exposed to those difficulties, man. hundred percent. I mean, this is something that I think about so much, especially, you know, I flew back from uh, the U S this morning, landed yeah. this morning. Um, the class system in the UK is very rigid. Yes. You know, um, America still has this very fluid sort of working to middle and then middle to upper class system. Yeah. I have bags of friends in the US. All of my richest friends are American, right? Yeah. All of them. Yeah. And they're homeschooling their kids, paying tutors to come around to school their kids, but they come from backgrounds as poor as mine and yours. Yeah. But they don't have that sort of glass ceiling, rigid yes. class structure thing that p plays on top of them. I feel it as well with me and I can't wait to be a dad, you know, like when the time's right for me. Um, but I think about that too. How yeah. am I going to be able to give the challenges that I need to, to my yeah. kids to make them sufficiently resilient? Because I know how much I value that in myself Yeah. whilst not making their life unnecessarily hard. Yeah. Uh, it, it's very, there very so difficult. There's so many variables with that as well. Like for instance, we, we've got like a, we've had to sit down as, as parents. I think parenting is so hard and you don't understand it until you're like, you're in amongst it and you're actually going through it. Where we were getting to a point where I was conscious of this and mm -hmm. my wife wasn't. So she was giving everything he wanted, all that kind of stuff. I was the opposite because I could see that he was getting, he was expecting everything, he, whatever mm -hmm. he wanted, he was getting. So I was going the opposite way, doing the tour. So I was purposely not doing I Bad cop, good cop. Yeah, being strict with him. But again, that has its own problems because you then create a divide between parenting and mm. who's he going to be drawn to, who's he going to. and Soft and touch with mum. Yeah, so we had to sit down not long ago and we are now working in a line in unison. But again, we still need to find that that balance because I take him to, he goes to the gym. Like, he's, he's so competitive, which is which is brilliant because I'm glad we've got that side nailed down already. Mm -hmm. because the reason I put him in that school was it's very sports academic. It's very, very, and it, you 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 win gracefully, you lose gracefully. There's no such thing as taking part. There's good. I, I good. Think, yeah. I love that aspect. And we've got him in gymnastics on a Wednesday. He swims on a Tuesday. He plays football on a Saturday, he swims on a Sunday. So he's doing what I did growing up. He, he doesn't sit in front of a TV. He's mm -hmm. very active. He's outside. He forests every week. He's foresting every week. Um, so I'm proud of that side, but you're very right in the fact that, yeah, how, how do we, uh, 
not mollycoddle him too much. Absolutely. So let me give you some insights that I've learned over the last couple of years to do with this stuff. So okay. uh, the number one behavioral uh, behavioral geneticist on the planet, a guy called Robert Plowman. So he was the fourth most cited psychologist of the 20th century. That's a century yeah. that had people like Sigmund Freud in it, right? So. Yeah. The fourth most cited. He basically has teased apart the differences between nature and nurture more than anybody else in history. Okay. Yeah. Every single pair of twins born in the UK between 1991 and 1994 were enrolled into this study. They've ended yeah. up tracking, I think it's somewhere in the region of about 50,000 pairs of twins. Wow. Some of these were separated at birth, taken into adoptive or foster families. And when you do that, especially if you've got monozygotic twins, you have one person in terms of their genes, but two environments, yeah. right? So it allows you to tease apart what are the differences etc etc when you control for everything including socioeconomic status household income blah 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 the school that you'd send your kid to accounts for between one and three percent of their academic outcomes so if you were to send them to the worst school in the region or the best school in the region now the problem that you have here one in three percent doesn't sound like much another thing to fold in is that the um nurture part of nurturing when you raise your kids yeah. doesn't come from you and it doesn't come from your wife. Okay. It comes from the friends that they hang around with. Right. It comes from the uh, father of the cool kid that he likes to go and play with. It's like, my dad's lame because my dad doesn't play guitar, but John's dad lets him play right. guitar and okay. he gets to stay up late and have ice, ice cream. Okay. And if John's dad also happens to be a businessman that is very focused on money, if John's dad happens to be someone that gambles a lot, if John's dad happens to have a terrible relationship with his partner, those are the values that will be inculcated. The single best predictor of a child's future wealth level when controlling for all of the other variables is the average income of the postcode that they grow up in. So it's the people around them. The nurture yeah. element of nature and nurture for yeah. children's upbringing seems to be the friend groups that you put them in. So one of the yeah. first things that I would do is very, very like, and this is something that I think about you know, when I imagine my imaginary child that I don't have yet, um, I would go and vet very, very closely what are the coaches like at every single different boxing gym, swimming gym, gymnastics gym, okay. which is the one that I think, right, he's got the values. He's the dad that's closest to me, that's, so that's closest. What, that's what we did with that school. Yep. We went to about four private schools. They were all driven by like the education side, which is great. Mm-hmm. For me, I was driven by the sports and the winning side and the competitive. Doesn't and sound like a a professional athlete. <laughs> all aspects of it though. But yeah, so carry on, sorry. No, just that I, I would focus very much on who are the other kids that are going? Yeah. What are the parents like that go there? I would, this sounds bad, but I would very carefully vet the friends that you're sending the kids around to. And this doesn't mean, you know, they can be from any background that you want, but you want the family to have the right values. You want them to be hardworking. You don't want them to be materialistic. You want them to understand the value. You don't want them to be spending all of their time on their phone, et cetera, et cetera. And um, this is where wealth doesn't create advantages for kids. Yeah. um, Because a lot of the time, if you're rich, you will outsource raising your kids to, nannies to kindergarten etc etc but they're not going to take this level of uh, resolution they're not going to look at it this finely yeah and if you do decide to do that i really think that the differences that you can see i i would i would go as far as to say that you could ignore the time that it looks at in terms of school outcomes educational all the rest of it and simply focus on do they have the right values? Yeah. Who are the kids that they're hanging around with? What are the activities they're doing outside of school? And what are the parents of the kids that they're hanging around with? And I think that you will have 
as much, if not more, of an impact. Now, obviously, you want to cover yeah. all of the bases, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but that seems to be, based on what I've read, one of the longest levers that you have for your kids. And I think that you're doing Absolutely. it the right way, focusing on what are the values, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. Um, but yeah, man, it's a, a ruthless situation to think that the nurture <laughs> part of nature and nurture isn't you, and it's not your partner. That's you so know? true. That is so true. So I need to make sure everyone's around me. Yeah, absolutely. Me. Absolutely. Well, <laughs> okay. you know, but think about it this yeah. way, man. You have the opportunity to create, and I see this again in in Austin. There's a lot of these. Um, it's called homesteading. Okay. So my friends that have sold companies for tens of millions when they were in their twenties and are now just getting to chill out and raise their kids on a nice. on a ranch or whatever, they'll go and buy a hundred acres of of land somewhere in Texas with ten other families. One will be a doctor. Okay. One will be a teacher. One will be a physical trainer one will be something else and they'll basically make a miniature village they'll homeschool the kids all together but what they're doing is they're pre-selecting for people that are like the sort of people that they're like that are like the sort of people that they want their kids to be like and you're going to end up with those communities i think unless there's some like weird uh byproduct uh maladaptive social effect that happens because uh, they're not sufficiently exposed to different cultures or whatever that might be a thing but I think that you're going to see those people having really, really great outcomes for their kids. Now, you might get uh, like a concentration or a distillation of bad thought patterns because mm. it's focusing everything, not just the good, but also yeah. the bad. Yeah. Um, you know, like it, this is how cults start, right? It's, mm. you know, if you have like a little bit of racism and everybody around you is a racist, everybody's pretty yeah. racist. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think that that's a good way to look at it. And what you have the opportunity to as somebody that has a platform that has success that has, you know, an aspirational lifestyle is to not only raise up your kid, but to find other people that have a growth mindset that have kids and you go, why don't we work together to make our kid, given what we know, given how we understand that child development works, why don't we work together and dedicate the next five to 10 years to both? I'm going to give all of the values and maybe even write it out. This is something that I consider doing, sit down with, you know, four other pairs of parents that have all got kids that are all going to maybe have more that are around about your age and say, okay, let's agree on an agenda, you know, like you do with a business. You've got brand values for a business. You've got guidelines. You've got a branding guide. You've got all of these different things for a business and you never sit down and do this for your kids. Yeah, yeah. So I think that would be a really good, a really good strategy for people to think about doing. Yeah, definitely. Let's uh, try to tell that to my wife. Ah, she'll be on (laughs) board. She'll be on board. Okay. So what's next? What can people expect from you next? So we've got an exciting year this year. So like I say, we were talking about this on the on the cab drive over. Um, I The last two years, I don't know what it was, where I felt like I'd achieved everything I wanted to other than the Olympia. And I kind of just sat back on my laurels a little bit. I, I, I financially got into a place I wanted to be. The, the companies were doing, doing okay and stuff. And I kind of, yeah, just lulled a bit for two years. And that's just not me. And the longer I did that for, the more I was getting agitated, the more I was just not happy myself. So this year, and I said to my wife at Christmas, I said, look, I need, I need to go back to who I am. And and that's keeping busy, keeping progressing in life. And that it's not necessarily financially or competing. It's just, I need to still fulfill and keep doing things. Like I need to keep progressing mm-hmm. moving forward. So I took on some big challenges this year. So again, I've got a huge project, which is going to take me all year to do, but this is, yeah, setting me up for, for the next 10, 20 years. And it's, it's always been a dream of mine, which I've wanted to do. And it's just, I've never had the right time to do it with traveling, being in a different country every week and having different obligations and stuff. But I feel like now with, with the young family and, and wanting to be at home more, it's a perfect 
time to do this. So that's as much as I'm going to say on it. But it's it's going to be like like nothing the UK scene. So it's going to be phenomenal. And at the same time, we've got the Ryan Terry British Championship. So again, this is a legacy. you're on your own federation now. Own my own show. Okay. So it's the it's the finale. I won this in 2013, and it's the British Championship. So it's basically the best of the best amateurs in the UK all go head to head to win the British title and you win a pro card and you go into the pro leagues, which can then take Which federation is this? This is the IFBB. Right. Uh, It's it's affiliated to the IFBB, but it's two bros. But Jim Shark have kindly backed me this year. So I've done it for four years um, on my own. It's been very difficult, very hard. And it's always just been a a passion of mine. I never made money out of it. It was just because... Here comes Ben Francis swinging in, last minute, slipstreaming all of the work you've done. (laughs) Exactly. But... It's going to just put bodybuilding, like UK bodybuilding, back on the map. And for me, that's what it's about. I'm not, I'm not bothered about taking money from this at all. I just want there to be a show where everyone goes to and just comes out of it thinking, oh, my days, that's what it used to be. Because I grew up around bodybuilding from 14, and I used to go to Southport, to the Mr. Universe, I used to go to Batley, Briley Hill, all these dives. But they were just brilliant bodybuilding shows. And the standard of of athletes, the you had thousands of people filling village halls and stuff and it was just brilliant and we've lost that it became a money thing it became i hate to say a bit bit political a bit clicky and we just lost that authenticity so my goal taking money out of it is to bring that back and i'm going to do everything it takes some of the things and some of the people who are coming to this show already it's just going to be off the richter and we've got the manchester arena which we're we're looking at doing this weekend with the lift event we've actually hired that out again um for, for the bodybuilding show in october and yeah i'm so excited for that Unreal. Ryan Terry, ladies and gentlemen, if people want to keep up to date with the stuff that you do, where should they go? Yeah, you can follow me on social media, uh, Ryan J. Terry on Instagram. Um, That's kind of my main platform on YouTube, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Ryan, I appreciate you. Thank you, mate. Take care.